0: Chapter 12 of NECWA or the Problem of the Ages. Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. NEQUA or the Problem of the Ages by Jake Adams. Chapter 12 The Institute of Superintendents. Part 1. At an early hour, we were up. And had our breakfast, I felt that my journey to Orbitello and the hosty glens through the leading departments had been the most instructive day I had ever experienced. but I was not surfeited, and I looked forward with interest to the meeting of the Institute of School Superintendents, and especially to Norena's oral lessons from the transition period of the great industrial commonwealth of Altruria we met in the auditorium of the department of public printing many had already arrived and were gathered into groups in various portions of the vast hall conversing with each other i took a seat on one side by myself to contemplate the same before me i was by nature a student and here i was among as it were a nation of competent instructors and in a country where everything demonstrated the power to control the great potent forces which govern the external world and the innate force of our higher moral and spiritual concepts of what should be our relations toward each other in order to convert this earth into a heaven of blissful happy contentment i was among a people who universally regarded an injury to one as the concern of all and hence health happiness and abundance for all was their normal condition i could hardly realize that this country had once been the abode of poverty and all of its consequences of ignorance vice and crime that here were equal rights equal opportunities and an equal share in the unlimited abundance which nature places within the easy reach of intelligent labor was the universal and unquestioned law of being there had once been a grasping and cruel financial and commercial power that condemned the wealth-producing millions to lives of unrequited toil. But such, I was repeatedly told, had been the fact, and Norena at this meeting was to give an oral lesson from that period and describe the power that had oppressed and degraded people in those early ages. But a short time had gone by since my first meeting with these people, and yet I had become roughly absorbed in their mental, moral, and spiritual life. I felt myself to be all intents and purposes one of them. What was it that had so entirely taken possession of my consciousness? In all my life I had never felt so completely at home, and at peace with myself and all the world i was fully satisfied Lorena broke in upon my reverie by asking what is it nequa that so absorbs your attention that you seem to be utterly obvious of the presence of this large assemblage of teachers from all parts of the country to talk over the history of the olden time when wealth accumulated and men decayed have you forgotten what i told you last evening Orqua will report the lesson from the transaction period in english for you and you can afford to give some attention to your old friends Iola, macnere polaris dione and your comrades of the ice king i looked around and found that while i had been musing our party had all gathered near me without attracting my attention and i said apologetically i must have been dreaming then you are dreaming with your eyes wide open said aqua i noticed that you seemed to be unusually absorbed what were you thinking about i was pondering i replied how it was possible that this country could ever have been cursed with poverty as the normal condition of the mass of the people while the few were rich beyond the dreams of avarice and held those mass spawned by fetters that they could not break. "'It is now time for the exercises to commence,' said Norena. "'I will explain the mystery in my address, at least so far as the leading factors are concerned, for in its entirety it is indeed a long and ghastly picture of human ignorance on one side, and human greed, directed by a morally perverted human intelligence on the other side. The chairman called the meeting to order and stated that the first thing on the program would be an address on the transaction period by Norena, the Continental Commissioner of Education, without extended preliminary remarks. The speaker opened the discussion of question under consideration from which i condensed the following from all cross reports in english yet notwithstanding my short residence in the country i believe that i could have given the gist of the address myself without any assistance i need not said the speaker enter into any lengthy explanation before an institute of teachers As to how our ancestors under the old civilization exchanged the products created by their labor for products created by the labor of others, by the use of a law-created medium of exchange, called money, neither need we trace the history of many kinds of products and devices which were used in different ages as a medium of exchange, such as cattle, slaves, shells, tobacco, the skins of animals and certain stones and metals. These things are only of interest to the antiquarian. It is enough to know for our present purpose that money had originally been devised as a substitute for butter, and marked the first step towards the establishment of a system of exchanging products, which required the exercise of a higher order of mental faculties, During the early part of the transaction period, gold and silver were the exclusive materials from which money was coined, except for sums of only a few cents, where the so-called baser metals were used. As the supply of gold and silver were not equal to the demands of business, banks were established to issue notes to circulate as money with the consent of both parties to the exchange these notes were made redeemable in gold and silver on the demand of the holders, and at frequent intervals the banks failed and the people lost the wealth which they had exchanged for the notes. This was a transfer without compensation of the actual values created by the labour of the people to the note-issuing power, and this process, oft-repeated, laid the foundations for many colossal fortunes. In this connection, it may be well to note that in times of great public danger, when the mantle coins disappeared from circulation, the government exercised the right to issue a legal tender paper money to meet the deficiency. It served all the purposes of gold, and even in the midst of adversity and disaster, brought great industrial prosperity to the people. But when the danger had gone by, strange as it may appear, the government funded this legal tender paper into government bonds, payable, interest, and principal, in corn. This process of converting the debt-paying medium of the country into an interest-bearing debt, that must be paid in another kind of money which had been hidden away by the more wealthy in times of danger, was the foundation of the great bonded debt of this country, which was established during the transaction period. This bonded debt was made the basis of a national bank currency, for the redemption of which at first in legal tender paper and coin, and later in gold. The people as debtors to the banks were in the last analysis responsible. In other words, the national bank currency derived its sole value as a reliable medium of exchange from the fact that it was based on the public credit and this public credit belonged to the people but the private banking associations got the benefit for the private gain of their shareholders and the service rendered cost the people many times its worth during the transaction period in this country The people had three kinds of legal tender money—gold, silver, and paper, together with the national banknotes, which were a legal tender as between the people and the government. At the close of this period, silver coin and legal tender paper were made redeemable by the government in gold, on the demand of the holder, and all deferred payments were made payable in gold, on the demand of the creditor. The great bulk of the business of the country among the people was transacted by the use of silver, paper, and bank notes. But the holders of these forms of currency could demand gold in exchange. And if for any cause the government failed to collect enough gold from the people to meet the demand, it became the duty of the secretary of the treasury to sell interest bearing gold bonds to meet the deficiency such in brief was the complicated cumbersome and unscientific system of exchanging or distributing wealth which existed under the old civilization the means of production being fixed by nature law was the same then as now wealth always was and must always continue to be the product of human labor and skill applied to natural resources facilitated by such mechanical contrivances and business methods as human skill may devise. But the system of distribution, being entirely under human control, is continually changing as affected by human impulses, whether they be selfish, as in the olden time, or altruistic, as they were now. We now exchange a product for a product of equal value for the convenience and benefit of all without any charge except for the necessary labour expended in the production and distribution but under the old civilization the product was first exchanged for money and the money was then exchanged with someone else for the product that was wanted in return as a method of exchanging one value for another this was a very awkward and unscientific process but in and of itself it was not necessarily unjust and oppressive yet the system such as it was could be used by the greedy few who controlled the financial and commercial affairs of the country for the purpose of exacting such exorbitant tribute from the many as would and did condemned the millions to poverty. The view, with their superior business sagacity, took advantage of this semi-barbarous idea of a perpetual money token, which was supposed to contain within itself an actual value, equal to the values which it was used to exchange, and they organized the banking as the chief factor in the mechanism of exchange among themselves, which in its operations also gave them control of the perpetual money tokens which the people must have to carry on their ordinary business transactions with each other these rude financiers had no use for money except to pay balances and at the time of the end Ninety seven percent of the great business transactions of the country were carried on by means of organized credit through banks and clearing houses. This system of minimizing the use of legal money through banking methods as a matter of course left a huge surplus in the hands of the great operators, which was loaded to the people, who in their unorganized condition, were compelled to pay cash. These loans bore various rates of interest, but always much above the average increase of wealth, and very often so exorbitant that the states, for very shame's sake, were compelled to establish certain arbitrary rates, beyond which the money-lender dare not go. This will be seen at a glance that this system of transacting the business of the country on a cash basis, by the people and by organized credit, through banks, by large operators who controlled finance and commerce, could not fail to give to the latter an enormous advantage in the aggregate business of the country. The great masses of wealth producers naturally become a debt class. As all wealth was the product of their labor, they must necessarily create the means of paying all indebtedness, interest, and principal. Hence, they constituted the interest-paying mass, while the comparatively small number of large operators constituted a powerful credit class who were continually receiving interest, and hence always had money to learn or invest in such a manner as to be enabled to receive more interest and the larger the interest charged against the people, the more they needed money and the more inclined they were to borrow. Cities and towns often voted a bonded debt upon themselves for improvements for the express purpose of providing employment for the workers, so that business might derive some temporary advantage by having the wages expanded in their midst. The great mass of the people did not realize that a part of the same dollars they borrowed must go back to the lender to pay interest, and that the consequent deficiency in the means of payment could only be met by transferring to the creditor a portion of the wealth created by their labor equal to the interest, and the larger the aggregate indebtedness in proportion to the volume of money available for debt-paying purposes, the larger must be the deficiency to be met out of their savings, or what should have been their net income from the exercise of their producing power. But the interest on loans, public and private, was only a small fraction of the burden of usury imposed upon the wealth-producing mass, all the large industrial, financial, and commercial enterprises of the country were on a debt-creating basis. Stock companies owned the railroads of the country, the streetcars, waterworks, gasworks, and the electric light and the power plants of the cities. All the great manufacturing, mining, and commercial enterprises, the steam-shaped lines, and even vast banana farms and stock ranges. All these interests were operated with a view to paying dividends on the stock, in addition to the operating expenses, and were therefore equivalent to a perpetual interest bearing debt, the principal of which never could be paid. The constructive indebtedness, was intended to be perpetual, and its volume was not limited to the actual cost of the various enterprises that were incorporated. The railways, for instance, sold stock to many times the cost of the roads, or as it was called, watered the stock, and then they ordinarily bonded the roads to a vast sums besides. These bonded that, however, were very often created for the purpose of bankrupting the companies for the enrichment of an inside ring. This process was known as freezing out the stockholders, and by thus reducing capitalization, it was not necessary for the roads to exact so much tribute from their patrons in order to pay dividends. Other cooperative enterprises also watered their stock, and some of them got such a hold upon the people that they continued to pay exorbitant dividends on their factitious valuation until they were absorbed into the larger combination of the whole people. At the close of the transaction period, the volume of interest bearing indebtedness and dividend earning investments was estimated at fifty thousand millions, and the average cost to the people six per cent allen on an aggregate of three thousand millions every year to be taken out of the wealth produced by the people the bulk of these obligations public co and private was held by the great banking institutions which had been established by the co and the trust magnates who practically owned the lands and all the machinery of production and distribution they owned not only the indebtedness against the people but they controlled the medium by which it must be paid and on their demand under the law this medium of final payment was gold and this great creditor class was the principal employer of labour and controlled both the buying and selling of products which the people must have for the purposes of consumption thus fixing both the income and the expenses of the producer, it was not difficult to collect that tribute. A pro rata of the great annual charge of interest, dividends, and profits against the people was collected from the producer in the shape of a discount on what he had to sell, whether it was his labor or its products. The remainder was charged up to consumption, And constituted a part of the price that was paid for every article that was purchased. The cost to the consumer of every commodity purchased consisted of five distinct elements. First, interest on the money supposed to be invested in its production and distribution. Second, rent upon all the buildings in which it had been stored which would include cars or vessels used in transportation, third, profit to all who had handled the product, fourth, its pro rata of taxation, and fifth, the wages paid to the labour expended in its production, transportation, superintendence and distribution. These fifth elements in the cost was all that went to useful labour, while the other elements went to the great financial industrial and commercial combines which held the mass of the people in their grasp of course under the operation of this system where both the income and the expenses of the producer were determined by this great creditor class for its own selfish purposes it is not strange that the condition of the average toiler was one of poverty nor is it strange that a widespread spirit of unrest an oven of angry and violent discontent threatened the peace of society and the perpetuity of established institutions and a stable government but to us it does indeed look strange that the brawny mullins, whose strong arms and undaunted courage had conquered the untamed forces of nature and made the wilderness a fit dwelling place for a refined and cultured people, could have been bound hand and foot by such a gossamer thread as the puny power of a few owners of gold. But when we take into consideration the fundamental truth that mind controls matter, and that the few who were at the top had cultivated brains while the many who are at the bottom had only cultivated muscles. The mystery is solved. The toiling mass had no conception of their power, and on their plan of intelligence were utterly unable to hold their own against the wily schemes of the more intelligent few. At the time of which we speak, four fifths of the aggregate wealth of the country had passed into the hands of a small fraction of the people, and millions were landless, homeless, and dependent for subsistence upon the scruples, as to speak, that fell from the tables of their lordly masters, who controlled every avenue to employment and dictated the terms upon which they were permitted to live. Being viewed in numbers, they could and did cooperate with each other for their mutual advantage. All they had to do in order to keep wages at a minimum was to leave a large number of applicants unemployed, and hence very poor, who at all times would be ready to take the place of workmen who demanded more liberal wages. The self-employed farmers were but little better off than the wage-workers as they were forced to sell their products and purchase their supplies at prices fixed by the great financial industrial and commercial combines which controlled the business of the country under the inequitable methods of exchange which existed at that time the mass of the people were powerless to help themselves the fortunate few who controlled money dictated how much they might receive for their labor or its products and how much of the products created by the labor of others they could purchase with the process to us the natural remedy for discrimination of this kind so unjust and oppressive to the mass of the people seems so self-evident and easy of application that it is not strange that many have been inclined to doubt the correctness of much that is recorded in the history of the economic conditions which existed under the old civilization when human selfishness ruled supreme in business affairs but when we take into consideration the fact that at that time the world had never had a single object lesson large enough to be seen by the great of mankind as to what would constitute an equitable system of distribution we are forced to the conclusion that the adverse conditions existing during the transaction period were just what might have been expected under the circumstances the few who had the ability to conduct the business of the world did not understand that the productive power of the earth is practically unlimited so that under an equitable system of exchange there is absolutely no possibility of any person being reduced to poverty then too the great masses were but a few generations removed from a condition of absolute self-dom and were just what ages of drudgery had made them and could not be expected to take broad and comprehensive views of the great economic problems by which they were confronted. The world had never known anything but the private ownership of all the means of production and distribution, and the desire to lay up treasures was universally regarded as laudable and praiseworthy. Under these circumstances, neither the few who had monopolized the earth nor the many who were disinherited could have been reasonably expected to be other than they were. Both alike were the product of long ages of growth. The wheat and the tires must necessarily grow up together, neutral by the same soil, until the harvest is ready, and then the separation takes place strictly in accordance with natural law the good power which established itself in this country during the transition period was an exotic that had been imported from the old world its object was to control every nation on earth for its own gain without being the royal supporter of any it had secured absolute control over the nations of the old world before it succeeded in financially conquering the new whenever it succeeded in establishing the gold standard in any country it established its local branch for controlling that country's finances its first object was to promote the creation of national bondage debts payable principal and interest in gold for this purpose it was always ready to loan money to carry on wars and each country could negotiate its loans through its own local branch but the creditor in every case, as a matter of fact, was the international gold power of the world, which had no preferences between nations but sought to impose a bonded debt alike upon all. There was absolutely nothing patriotic about it. All it wanted was a lien upon the industries of the world that would produce a steady income in the shape of interest. In this country, We had a republican form of government, and with our vast area of public lands, the people were more independent by far than the people of any other country ever had been, notwithstanding the fact that they were robbed unmercifully by the private banks which issued notes and then suspended, so that the notes which the people had accepted for their property became restless. At frequent intervals, these bank panics reduced thousands of people to bankruptcy. But the country was new, and the land could be hard for the asking. So when pressed to the wall, as it were, in the more populous districts along the eastern border, they came west on the public lands, made new homes, and soon accumulated another competency. It is not strange that this international gold power of the vote cast longing eyes upon a country that was so productive and could recover so rapidly from industrial depressions and financial disasters for nearly one hundred years after the establishment of our republic notwithstanding the prevalent white cat banking system as it was called and the absurd reference for the so-called precious metals the people of this country were practically independent of the great gold power which had its headquarters in Atlan, while the founders of the republic had made gold and silver corn the standard money of the country they reserved the right to issue treasury notes and also to make them a legal tender and as there was no great debt and land could be had for the asking the economic independence of the people could not be entirely crushed out and therefore arturia offered an actual barrier to the encroachments of the gold-power before the people could be actually subjugated financially a vast bondage debt must be created and in order to induce the people to agree to such a debt the life of the republic must be placed in jeopardy. A foreign war was not to be thought of, as it would arouse to fever-heat all of the innate democratic hatred against aristocratic rule of every name and description, but a war between the states would serve the same purpose. The conditions that made such an interstate struggle possible had unintentionally been provided for by the founders of the republic. At the time when the republic was established, the colored people were held as slaves in nearly all of its original colonies. This institution was regarded by the founders of the republic as inconsistent with the spirit of its institutions, and it was unsparingly denounced as the son of all villainies by a large number, and one state after another emancipated its slaves and a new free states were admitted until the country was practically half slave and half free in the manufacturing states uncultured slave labour was not profitable and hence there was but little objection to its abolition but in the agricultural states such labour was valuable as the old world furnished an unfailing market for all the surplus products. The gold power of Otlan took advantage of the situation to sow the seeds of discord between the two sections. Missionaries were sent into the manufacturing states, papers established, and literature distributed, appealing to the sympathies of the people in behalf of the slaves and creating a public sentiment against the slave-holding states these anti-slavery missionaries came in the name of religion and humanity, and it cannot be denied that ample grants existed for all that could be said against the charter slavery. but the purposes for which the anti-slavery agitation was used by the Good power War, if possible to destroy the republic or failing in this, involved the country in an interstate war and induced the patriotic lovers of liberty to consent to the establishment of a vast bonded debt. Another class of missionaries was sent into the slave-holding states, and another class of literature circulated, proclaiming that cotton is king, and that if free trade with all the world was established, the planters would be the wealthiest and happiest people on earth, that all that stood in the way was the union with the anti-slavery states, which sought to abolish the peculiar institution that enabled the planters to produce such a magnificent surplus, which the old world stood ready to take in unlimited quantities at high prices in gold, just as soon as free trade could be established. To secure this grand victory for agriculture, all that was needed was to dissolve the union with the anti-slavery states and their pet hobby of tariff duties on imported goods. Both sections of the country were flooded with literature, all of which contained enough of truth to make it attractive to honest people, and enough of misrepresentation to engender the most beat and antagonistic feelings between them. The institution of slavery was wrong, in and of itself, but the anti-slavery agitators ignored the fact that the mass of the slaves were not qualified for self-government, and that the perpetuity of free institutions depended upon the intelligence of the voters, they did not try to convert the slaveholding states to the policy of educating their slaves and preparing them for freedom but they went to the non-slaveholding states and demanded the immediate and unconditional abolition of slavery in the other section this was as a matter of course most exasperating to the people of the slave states who in their capacity was independent states felt themselves amply competent to attend to their own affairs in the political discussions of that time half-truths served all the purposes of full-grown falsehoods as a means of deluding the people the free-trade agitators of the slave states were unqualifiedly right when they called attention to the fact that all imported duties were a tax upon the people in proportion to their expenses instead of their incomes and were therefore unjust and oppressive to the great masses of the people. But they ignored the fact that the absolute free trade that did exist between all sections of the country was of vastly more importance to the slaveholding states than free trade with any foreign country could possibly be the manufacturing states of their own country were over 2,000 miles nearer to them than the manufacturing countries of the old world, and that fact, with a fair compensation to labour, would have given them an assured market for their surplus products without paying transportation charges both ways across the ocean. But the leading object of these free trade agitators, Was to appeal to the selfish impulses of the few who owned slaves, and to the race prejudices of the mass of non slaveholders, by telling them that the abolitionists proposed to place them on terms of political and social equality with the slaves. They were taught to believe that under the prevailing tariff regulations, they were taxed for the special benefit of the modest skills of the manufacturing states who being low down in the social scale themselves wanted to bring the proud chivalrous people of the slave states down to the level of their chattel slaves as a matter of fact neither the producing mass of the free states or the non-slaveholders of the slave states had the remotest conception that the international gold power of was taking advantage of the discussion of slavery and free trade through its paid agents, to sow the seeds of discord between the two sections of the great republic of the new world, and they permitted the resentments for fancied wrongs to be fanned into a flame of fierce indignation, which, as was intended, culminated in a bloody strife and the creation of a vast bonded debt. This fratricidal struggle lasted nearly five years, and when it ended, the people found themselves in debt, billions of dollars, to a class of people who had speculated on their necessities. The unsuspecting mass on both sides had bared their breasts to the stone of battle, endured all the privations and suffered all the loss, and were in debt for all the expenses of the war, including their own services, to the international money power, which ruled the world. End of chapter 12, part 1.